These are areas where having a lawyer look at them who understands the rules can help you and ensure that you're not setting yourself up for a problem to begin with. Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm your host, John Williams, and this is the fifth episode of XREL Radio, our multi-part series on the False Claims Act, which includes commentary on potential pitfalls for your company, enforcement issues, and emerging trends in this important area of the law. Today, we're talking to Michelle Litigan, counsel in our government contracts group, to discuss how the False Claims Act relates to small business programs, potential risks these companies face, and strategies for protecting your small business from an FCA claim. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope to have some fun, too. But we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over. Let's get started. Hi, Michelle. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. How are you today? Not bad for a Monday. How about you? Getting ready to head on vacation? I am. I fly out tomorrow. Yellowstone? Yosemite. Yosemite. <laughs> you okay, I knew, I knew it was someplace out west. You're an outdoors kind of person, right? You like to go camping and... Yeah, the tent, the sleeping bag, everything's packed. Fantastic. Well, what we're going to talk about today is, I guess, what small business contractors need to pack on their camping trip of government contracting, right, in terms of False Claims Act liability, because that's a whole cottage industry within the False Claims Act at large is dealing with the small business program compliance issues, right? Right. And just like, you know, hiking, you don't want to trip yourself up and fall down and break your leg. You definitely don't want to trip up in this space and do more than break your leg. Yeah. I mean, the DOJ, there's a lot of activity. You might think that small business contracts are, you know, less sexy, less on the radar of DOJ, but that's not actually the case. Like we're seeing a lot of cases that are the DOJ bringing enforcement actions, false claims act proceedings against small businesses, right? Yeah. When I uh, was looking at information to discuss during this podcast, I had no problem finding lots of press releases with settlements very recently because there is a lot of focus in this area. And I think there's a recognition that there's a big potential for abuse. Yeah. And the rules are confusing, right? I mean, that's what keeps you and I in business. And that's what makes it challenging for small business owners. You have a lot of things to do. Compliance can sometimes fall by the wayside. And I don't think we have any clients that ever intentionally don't comply with the rules, but they're confusing. So there there can be, you know, potential that you've recklessly disregarded the requirements. And we dove right in, but why don't you take us a step back and just tell us a little bit about, you know, I'm talking about intentional actions or reckless disregard. Like what what are we really talking about here? So that's right. The False Claims Act is a statute that imposes liability for knowingly presenting a false claim for payment to the government or a prime contractor. But that knowing doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a conniving, scheming, Mr. Burns type intent from The Simpsons. You know, it could be reckless disregard. It could be, you know, paying no attention to what your average annual revenues are and certifying as small, even though you blew past your size standard. Yeah, I think the 
one of the cases that we quote from often says, head in the sand, right? If you have your head buried in the sand, that obviously if you're a small business, you have a revenue target. Every small business needs to know that. I, I think you, you know you may not intentionally violate that, but you need to make sure you're not making a reckless error in, hey, you need to be small, right? And it's a similar concern for performing a contract. You know, we often are looking at the limitations on subcontracting. If you're not paying attention to that and you're just, you know, hoping it all works out, but you're not performing your 50%, 51% for a services contract, you're opening up the door for problems there. So I know our loyal listeners at XRL Radio already know a lot about the intricacies of the False Claims Act in general, but why don't you take us back through some of the key points, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty on small business programs. Sure. So a claim is not limited to a formal legal claim or a claim like you may know under the Contract Disputes Act. It means a demand or a request for money or property. So an invoice is a claim, a request for equitable adjustment is a claim. Basically, anytime you're putting out your hand and asking for something from Uncle Sam or the prime contractor, if you're a subcontractor, that can constitute a claim. And you know, what? if I could just But in there, what's interesting in the area of small business programs is claim for payment versus and a condition of payment versus condition of participation. So, you know, some of the small business cases that I've seen and been involved with, you know, it comes down to, well, was there a misrepresentation in the application for the 8A program or the HUBZone application, which getting into these programs, that's a condition of participation that you made an accurate representation. But on the other hand, when you're submitting invoices on a HUBZone contract, is it a condition of payment by the government agency for whatever work you did that you were HUBZone eligible? There's a healthy debate around that point. And I think the cases that have come down on both sides of that issue. So the claim for payment and what is a claim for payment and like what are you representing when you make your claim for payment is a critical issue in small business cases. And that could be very fact specific. It could be depending what's in that invoice because for that issue, it's often called an implied certification that when you're asking for payment, you're implicitly certifying that you've complied with all the requirements in the contract, be it the Buy America Act or the limitations on subcontracting being a hub zone. And in the application stage or even a proposal stage, it's often seen as fraudulent in the inducement where you're making these misrepresentations that ultimately induce the government to give you the contract. Okay, good. So thanks. So claim for payment is key, and especially for small business cases, it's an interesting you know, argument that can be made maybe depending on the terms of the contract. Keep, keep going on some of the background for False Claims Act. And then we talked about it briefly, the knowingness requirement. It means actual knowledge or deliberate ignorance of the truth or falsity or reckless disregard of the truth or falsity. So it's a lower standard than something intentional, which you'd be looking at in a criminal context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what is helpful sometimes in keeping some of these cases from going the criminal route, right? That it's rare that you come across a case of intentional misrepresentation by a small business owner. I mean, of all the cases that we've had, I'm not sure I can think of one. Have you seen that before in any of the cases you've done? No, I think it's it's hard to have that clear record of intent. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, my experience is the government really hones in on the reckless disregard piece and like, what were you doing to understand the rules? Did, and, you know, it's helpful to be able to say that, well, now folks can say, I listened to Michelle on XREL radio and, you know, I took the Polaro Maza free webinars and SBA briefings. I and mean, there's a lot of materials out there that you can use to educate yourself, which would help you guard against reckless disregard. Right. That's right. So in the cases that you're familiar with, maybe there are some that are helpful examples where small business programs have become an issue in the False Claims Act context. Do you want to share a few that maybe give some anecdotes for folks to understand the real world implications of small business program compliance? Sure. And I think it's helpful to think about the different kinds of misrepresentations or fraudulent statements that occur, that can occur in connection with these programs. So one is representing your revenues. As, as we know, I'm sure many of our listeners here are operating in the small business space, either have a revenue size standard or an employee size standard. And to qualify for Whatever code is assigned to the RFP, you need to make sure that you're eligible. And there was one case involving ADS Inc. that recently settled. It just passed in August because ADS was representing itself as a small business, but in actuality, it was affiliated with a number of other entities. So when you combined the average revenues for all of those entities, they were well over the size standard. But ADS had been awarded several small business contracts, and this turned into a, quite a large settlement because its subsidiaries were also getting contracts and involved. Individuals were also involved. So the total settlement was $36 million, which is the largest FCA recovery arising from allegations of small business contracting fraud. Wow, that's substantial. Do you know whether that settlement was premised on the profits that were earned on these contracts or whether it was based on the total value of contracts? They did not, in the press releases and agreements that I saw, explain how they de they derived that amount. But, you know, back in 2010, Congress did change the Small Business Act so that the law presumes a willful false certification occurs in the following circumstances. When the contractor holds itself out as a small business for a small business set aside, or the contractor encourages a federal agency to classify it as a bid for small business, or the contractor registers as a small business on a federal database. And when those prongs are met, you end up getting these enhanced penalties, the presumed loss rule, which presumes the government is losing the entire value of the contract. Yeah, I remember when that law was passed, and I think it took a few years before it got into SBA's rules after that, but this, what they call the presumed loss rule, right, it gives the government the ability to go after the small business for the total value of the contract that was awarded and performed based on the misrepresentation. So to go back to the point about maybe the misconception that these aren't the big sexy cases that DOJ wants to go after, I think that law was des designed in part to address that, to make this type of case one that the DOJ would be more apt to go after. But 
in practice, I'm not sure how often they're using the presumed loss rule. And that's why I was curious about this settlement from last month. That many of the cases that we've handled recently, they're still focusing on a profit calculation. And I think that ends up being in large part because when the contractor performs the services on the contract, there's no question they did the work. The government received a benefit of the work that was done. Then the profit is really the ill-gotten gain by the contractor because the government received a benefit of the underlying services. You know, so I think that's you can often steer the DOJ maybe toward focusing on profits, but you're right, they have this hammer of the presumed loss rule that they could say it's the total we're going after you for the total value of the contracts. And I've heard people from the DOJ say, well, what they've contracted for is a small business. They've, I've also heard this said like in the Buy America con- Act context, that if they wanted U.S. staplers and you give them Chinese-made staplers, then they didn't get any value because they wanted U.S.-made staplers. You know, obviously, we, there's a debate about, well, no, you got staplers. Right. And what is the material part of the contract there? But as you said, they can bring the hammer down in these cases. Yeah, and I think there's still a split amongst the different circuits around the country in terms of whether they're using the presumed loss rule type calculation or focusing on profits. So it's interesting to see how that continues to develop. And, you know, the ADS case also sounds really interesting because affiliation is often a very difficult concept to get a clear answer of. You know, it's uh, SBA uses what they call totality of the circumstances test. There's a fair amount of it that's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, some of it can be black and white, but a lot of it shades of gray. So is are there any insights from the case in terms of the type of affiliation issues that were being dealt with there? I think in this case, it was pretty clear with the subsidiary relationships and the ownership and control. When I was looking for uh, examples, I also found a case where the firm was size protested for affiliation and SBA cited and the DOJ as additional indica of the fraud, the steps that they took to try to defend the size protest and providing misleading and inaccurate information in response to the size protest. So I have no evidence that happened in ADS, but that's the kind of, you know, more black and white issue when you're accused of affiliation instead of acknowledging it and trying to fix it maybe after the protest is resolved, just trying to sweep it all under the rug. Yeah, and you know, apparent you're right. The parent subsidiary relationship is one of the what I would call black and white affiliation issues. If you if one entity owns 50% or more of another entity, they're affiliated under the stock ownership affiliation rule and that's an irrebuttable affiliation. There are others like identity of interest affiliation as a, probably the best example that are rebuttable presumptions. And I think there's a... Can be Ostensible a fair, subcontractor, can be very fact-specific. Very fact-specific, fair amount of gray, reasonable minds can disagree. I would anecdotally at least guess that it'd be harder to bring a False Claims Act case under rules like that than it would be under a parent subsidiary or just a, the stock ownership rules in general. And to your point on the size protest response, that's a great point that you're making that that becomes an additional representation, an additional potential for False Claims Act liability. And we had a client years ago that came to us after they had done the size protest response and they were then being investigated 
for what turned out to be false statements made to the SBA as part of that size protest response, SBA took the position that they never would have found the company to be small if it weren't for the misleading statements and the owners of that business went to jail. So, I mean, that's a worst case scenario for if you if you don't handle the size protest response properly, you're creating even additional liability for yourself, you know, adding to the pile, so to speak. Yeah, because I think at that point, you have a much stronger argument for intent if you're the government because you're signing things under penalty of perjury and directly addressing allegations made against your company. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, we didn't realize the affiliation rules worked that way at when we submitted our proposal. Because that is honestly, I think, a le- the correct and legitimate answer for many companies that haven't worked with us. You know, and it, these are hard rules to understand. But once, once you're under the crosshairs of an SBA investigation and they're putting the rules and the allegations right in front of you, you have to come clean at that point, right? Yeah. And I think going back to the kind of conduct that can give rise to fraud allegations, at least. Understanding those eligibility requirements before you even apply, because for the Hub Zone program, the 8A program, you're doing a ton of paperwork, making a lot of representations, and that can give rise to some liability too. There was another settlement in August 2019. This one dealt with the Hub Zone program. Classic Site Solutions Inc. settled for $1.3 million. They falsely claimed to be located in a hub zone region. They obtained their hub zone certification twice and were awarded three federal contracts. And then it was uncovered that they weren't in a hub zone and they had been misrepresenting this the whole time. Yeah, we've certainly seen an uptick in these types of cases pertaining to the hub zone program. To go back to my theory that these rules are complicated. There aren't any more complicated small business rules than the hub zone rules, I think. I mean, that those are routinely challenging for firms and the government to understand and apply. So whenever there's that type of complexity in the rules, there's certainly fertile ground for mistakes and potentially false claims act issues. Were, were either of these cases that you talked about, do you know, were they were later cases? I would have to check back. Oftentimes they are. Yes. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, disgruntled former employee would certainly know, are you located in a hub zone or not? You know, where's your office? Where do you have your people going to? Or the affiliation between parent and subsidiary entities. And that's not hard to discover for someone who's working for you. And that person could be the person to file a False Claims Act case. You know, if these didn't involve relators, it's just an indication that the DOJ, which we know to be the case, they're actively pursuing these cases on their own, too. Yeah, I mean, I've seen instances where contracting officers, people start questioning the way people are running contracts because they say, wait, what's the small business doing here? One, I don't know if that happened in this case, but I could imagine it happening in this VMJ construction company case that I found. It was a $3.6 million settlement involving two construction companies. VMJ was accepted into the 8A program, but it turned out that it was relying upon Vigil Contracting, a former 8A company, to bid on the work. So Vigil was the company actually providing the bonding, the office space, the employees, the software, the computers, the vehicle, and was really 
kind of calling the shots behind the scenes too, deciding which contracts to go after, who to team with, how to run everything. And that's the kind of thing where if someone else is on that project and sees what's going on, it could raise eyebrows. Absolutely. And I I have heard that the SBA and maybe DOJ as well, but the SBA in particular has been focused on fraud in the 8A program recently. So they, they have more of a focus than maybe they have had historically on rooting out fraud in the 8A program. So if you're an 8A firm, this case you know, sends a signal to you that they're looking at these exact types of issues. It also sounds like there's really an affiliation issue baked into this case too, which at the heart of so many small business cases that whether it's 8A, woman-owned, SCVSB, a lot of it does come back to affiliation, doesn't it? It does. And I'll also note that one of the reasons why the 8A program may be a target is because you have your initial application, you have your annual update where you're continually certifying. So each of those is another opportunity for the government to say that you're making some kind of false statement. Mm-hmm. Although the the interesting point there is I mentioned before about condition of participation versus condition of payment. And there was an Eastern District of Virginia case, Thermcor, a couple years ago. We, Our firm was an expert in that case. And the judge ultimately ruled against the relator. And the case had been based on alleged misrepresentations in 8A annual updates. And the conclusion was that those 8A annual updates, whatever representations were made, were conditions of continued participation in the 8A program, but they were not conditions of payment on the contracts that the company had successfully performed. So I know the DOJ is not happy with that case. It's not certainly not not all cases have come out that way, but it's an interesting way that, that this judge did in the Eastern District of Virginia. So any other types of cases worth passing along? Another type of conduct that the government seems to be targeting is on when you have companies that appear to be operating as as pass-throughs or fronts or sometimes shams. It's happened in the ANC context. There was this case pending right now where a former compliance officer, so a case like you mentioned where an employee blows the whistle, alleged that an ANC, an Alaskan Native Corporation, created sham 8A companies to win contracts, but then used other subsidiaries to perform the work. We've also seen this in the SDVOSB context, where it's referred to as rent-a-vet often, where someone will find a service-disabled veteran and have him or her front the company and put their name on it. But when you look behind the tent, the veteran isn't actually running things They may have a 51% ownership, but when you look at the day-to-day operations, they're not really running, managing, owning, controlling. And so there was a recent $3 million settlement in a a case involving SDVOSB fraud like that. Yeah, I think the classic rent-a-vet scenarios that the non there's a non-veteran that's really getting the financial benefit out of this, what's supposed to be going to veterans. Exactly. And that's, you know, what these programs are designed to gear financial benefits towards particular individuals or in the case of the hub zone program to particular regions. So that's why the government's focused on where's the money going. I mean, that that's one of the really important parts of these cases. So the cases that you highlighted, you talked about settlements. And I wonder, are settlements common for these types of cases? Settlements are fairly common. 
Much like many kinds of litigation, you don't see these things going all the way to trial very often. I know. Why you do you pro- think that is? I suspect that when the DOJ comes to you after the you know the charge has been brought and gives you the evidence that they have that they plan to use in court, it becomes a risk benefit analysis. And if there's you know former employees who are going to be testifying or people put bad things in emails, you know it becomes. A, much more prudent to settle that and avoid the litigation. Yeah. And the cost of litigation too. I mean, even as efficient as we always try to be for our clients, it's very expensive and time consuming to go through litigation. So you're right. I think it's a risk analysis. You know, what do we stand to potentially lose or what are the costs of litigation and the time? But not all cases. I mean, sometimes it doesn't make sense to settle, right? And it's, you're better off pushing forward. So if you resisted efforts to settle and and decided, no, we're better off pushing forward, what are some of the other potential outcomes that you might be looking at? I mean, if it went all the way to trial, you could end up having, you know, a guilty verdict against you and court-ordered penalties. Depending on the level of intent, there could be a criminal prosecution. There is suspension and debarment that could happen as part of a settlement, too. An administrative agreement, which is similar to suspension and debarment, but it's where the contractor and the government agree to remedial actions to address any wrongdoing. That's usually part of a settlement. Not a lot of great options when you end up in the crosshairs. I mean, obviously, what we're aiming for is to do our own investigation, I guess, to get us up to speed as we can, get ahead of the government if we can, anticipate where they're going. And try to convince them they don't have a case, right? This this case doesn't warrant prosecution. Maybe they have some evidence. We weren't perfect. We're not angels, but we had no intent. We also were not recklessly disregarding. So this case should go away. You should decline to pursue the case. And that would be, the I guess, the best case scenario if you end up in a situation like this. Yes. And I'll say there's also incentives to cooperate. The penalties are lower if you cooperate, you know, and the government would much rather have you provide the information and cooperate, save them their resources. And if you're in some situation where it's a sham kind of situation or a big business is taking advantage of a smaller business, it could be there's other companies that have been involved. And maybe you're in a position where you can cooperate with the government and then you know, be a cooperating witness essentially and help them go against the bigger fish. Mm -hmm. Good point. But, you know, convincing the government not to carry the case forward and not having to settle for some monetary penalty and a press release that everybody can read on the internet, you know, that's difficult to do. Better to avoid even being in that situation if you can. So what are some best practices there? Well, like we were saying, you want to make sure you understand the requirements of any small business program that you're participating in and reach out to counsel when you have questions. You know, we often are reviewing subcontracts, joint venture agreements, teaming agreements. These are areas where having a lawyer look at them who understands the rules can help you and ensure that you're not setting yourself up for a problem to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I mean, it, it helps you twofold because First of all, like you said, you'll understand the rules better, in which you should, because if you're operating in this space, you need to be able to say, I didn't have my head in the sand. But you also then could have potentially an advice of counsel defense in the event that there is a case brought and you relied on advice from your lawyer. So I think those are two good reasons why it makes sense to be 
ensuring that you understand the rules of the game before you start playing. I agree. And then, you know, you can make sure that you're complying with the applicable regulations by doing periodic audits. You know, you can have internal procedures in place for when you're making your representations. You need to confirm who is responsible. You don't want any low-level employee being able to go into SAM and make those kinds of representations on behalf of the company because you could be putting the whole company at risk. And, you know, when are those representations made? what to do to confirm that they're still correct. And then every year, towards the beginning of the year, look at your new revenues. Are you still small? Look, if you have an employee-based standard, look at your employees. Yeah. You know, whenever there's a significant development in your company, has there been a merger or an acquisition, change in ownership? Yeah, no, that's great advice. And we have prepared those types of internal policies for clients before, like size and status representation procedures. I mean, when you're signing that proposal or or putting your digital signature and representations into SAM.gov or whatever it is, I mean, th- that those are critical compliance events for your company. So you want to make sure you know who's doing it, what their authority is, what are the processes that they have to follow before they do that. You can't just have BD and contracting folks out in the field that don't understand these requirements signing you up potentially for li- for liability. And even negotiating teaming agreements, subcontracting relationships, if they don't understand what you need to do to comply, especially with limitations on subcontracting, providing key personnel, performing the primary and vital requirements of a contract, you, you could be setting yourself up for litigation over who's performing what and then potentially False Claims Act trouble. And we talked on one of the earlier episodes about the potential that a prime contractor can be liable for, under the False Claims Act, for its subcontractor. Uh, Sarah Nash, when we're talking about construction, she had an example or two of cases along those lines. And I think the same thing could be true here, too, for prime contractors that are relying on representations of subcontractors without a good faith basis to do so, passing that through to the government, uh, maybe as part of uh, perceived compliance on a small business subcontracting plan, but in fact, you did no due diligence on your subs, you had no basis to count Lockheed Martin as a small business, (laughs) you know, or something like that in your subcontracting plan, that could create potential liability too. So, what should you do if you know you've got your policies and procedures in place or you're beefing them up if you don't have too much right now but you're making sure that critical event every time you make a small business representation that you're sure it's accurate and you understand the requirements you've talked with Michelle you've you know affiliation backwards and forwards but you know you can't prevent the rainy day right so what do you do when you suspect that there's been a violation You reach out to outside counsel, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a lawyer. It's because when you do an internal investigation, which is really what should be done in this kind of context, using outside counsel helps you to maintain privilege so that you can then selectively figure out which information you want to share with the government and what should be kept within the company. And Many contracts include the mandatory disclosure rule, which is an obligation that requires disclosure when you have credible evidence of an FCA violation. So doing that internal investigation, working with counsel, they can let you know when you reach that credible 
evidence standard that you need and then advise you on what should be put in your disclosure, who it goes to, when, how, because how this is communicated to the government could really affect whether you end up, you know, in court or whether you're able to you know, settle things more quickly, expeditiously with as little damage as possible. That's so true. I mean, how you handle those early stages of the subpoena response or the just finding out internally before the government even knows what happened is really critical to the ultimate resolution of the situation. And we see plenty of these where the ultimate resolution is nothing very onerous for the company. There isn't a fine, there isn't a big investigation, and certainly isn't a lawsuit. So, I mean, you can resolve even when you haven't been perfect. You can resolve the case without it turning into a big False Claims Act investigation or lawsuit. But I think, depending on the facts, of course, but a lot of that does depend on how you handle the early stages when it's first been discovered. So, all right, well, we're going to wrap up. How about concluding points? You know, what are the, there's a lot to know in the small business world, first of all, and then there's a lot to know in the False Claims Act world. So we're, we're merging those two concepts together. What are, what are our key takeaways here, Michelle? Well, as you said, John, even though this is not a particularly sexy area and these contracts tend to be a smaller dollar value, the government is committing resources to identify and prosecute small business fraud. You know, they don't want to see these programs taken advantage of. So everyone out there, if you're participating in these programs, you should know someone may be looking to make sure that you are following all the rules and not showing any reckless disregard for complying with those rules. So you should understand the rules for any program that you participate in. You know, and there's often rule changes. Don't just assume because you heard there's a new rule, like uh, the similarly situated rule, that you could just start using it right away. Because I know some people did. And if you were counting on complying by using that rule before it was actually in effect, that wouldn't be complying. You know, so make sure that you know those rules. When you have questions, reach out and ask because a quick call to John or me will save you a lot more in the long run. Yeah, I mean... I was thinking of another example, like similarly situated, is this change of the five-year average for calculating small business status. Now, I think we'd have a really good argument that if you were relying on five years, there couldn't be False Claims Act liability. Because frankly, I think we believe it already should be five years based on how the law was written. But SBA, GAO have said, no, three years until we get until SBA gets the rules in place. But that's just another example of how these rules are changing all the time. And you know, intentional violation, doubtful that we're going to see that from our clients anyway. But reckless disregard, that gets into a little bit grayer area. What are you doing to keep up on the latest and greatest and avoid someone thinking that you have your head in the sand? That's a great, that's a great takeaway. So I think, you know, you should view your lawyers as your strategic advisor, your partner who can help you navigate these waters and, you know, avoid a problem before it pops up. Great. Well, that's a great way to land. Thank you, Michelle. Enjoy Yosemite. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Mazza production and music credits go to bensound.com. I've been your host, John Williams. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.